This is Our American Stories, and we talk about all different types of subjects here on the show, and we especially love to tell stories of small businesses and startups. And today, Faith brings us one that started right here in Mississippi. Water Valley is a magical little town. It's super small, and it's super quaint, and it's, I've literally, like, I've never been in, well, there's a few places I've been, but I feel like that's that's one of the places that I've been where you really, like, you go, and then you drive down Main Street, and you feel like you've been, you you take a step back in time many, many years. The other day, I found myself wanting to do something a little different than my normal schedule. So, I hopped in my car and drove about 20 or 30 minutes away from Oxford, Mississippi, all the way to Water Valley, a small town of about 3,500. And exactly who was the voice that we were just listening to? She is the owner of the newest shop in town. It's called Heartbreak Coffee. I'm Gretchen Williams. I'm 31 years old. I live in Oxford, Mississippi. Grew up in Kansas City. Um, After high school, uh, I came to college at Ole Miss, and so I ended up in Oxford. I was here for four years. My last semester of college, I, I was studying exercise science, and I had to do an internship, and that's what took me out to Southern California. I worked for the city of Long Beach in the Department of Health. Once I graduated college, I, well, I hated what I was doing out there, but I loved being out there, so I decided I, I wanted to stay. Didn't know what I wanted to do with, with my degree or with my life, and so I Googled on my phone coffee shop because I thought that that would be an easy temporary job until I figured out what I wanted to do. There was one within walking distance from my house that I had just moved into in Seal Beach, California. So I walked down there waited around for about 20 minutes for the the owner to come in and ended up getting hired on the spot and working that day but that's actually how I ended up working in coffee and so I was out in California for about seven years working in a whole bunch of different coffee shops and that's when the obsession with coffee began about four years ago is when I started heartbreak yeah so I had been working in several different coffee shops since I graduated college. My voice cracks a lot, too, because I'm still going through puberty at 31. After working in, in a coffee shop, I, I mean, it was something that I really fell in love with and I became passionate about. Something that I decided, you know, I wanted to pursue and, like, do for the rest of my life, which is difficult to make a career out of coffee unless you, like, own your own shop or have your own roastery um it's you know it's not that easy making minimum wage and tips as a barista and and living off of that if that were possible that would be fantastic but um it's not yeah I kind of came to that realization one afternoon and kind of started thinking about different things that that I could do and that I was passionate about and coffee was really the only I had dabbled in several different things, but that was the one thing that kind of always stuck out to me that, you know, I, did, I really did love and I was really a nerd about. I was kind of naturally good at. So that same day, I decided to go online and buy this little half-pound tabletop coffee roaster. And 
I had never roasted my own beans. I had never worked in a coffee shop that had roasted their own beans, so I had no idea what I was doing. But it was something for me to kind of do on the side to continue to, to, to fuel this passion that I had. And um, once I ended up getting that roaster in and, you know, my first batch of green beans, I messed a lot of them up pretty, pretty good. Um, I made the mistake of roasting beans and then taking them right out of the roaster and trying them and they're terrible. They have to degas for a little while and uh, like usually about 48 hours. Um, so never eat coffee beans right out of the roaster because it's disgusting. <laughs> but, you know, slowly like some of them started tasting, you know, started tasting better and better. And there was, I was reading a lot about the, the topic. My girlfriend at the time, you know, saw my interest and my passion in it, and she was very encouraging of what I was doing, and um, she's a very talented artist. And so she came up with the name Heartbreak, which was kind of an homage to everything I had been through, like, on my coffee journey at that point, and just kind of this idea of, like, you know, turning... I don't know, like all things like bittersweet, you know, and turning like the negative into a positive. And that's kind of what heartbreak became for me. And it wasn't even supposed to be, it wasn't even supposed to be business at the beginning. It wasn't ever a business at the beginning. And that just kind of happened. I was roasting out of my own kitchen. And like I said, my girlfriend at the time, she ended up coming up with the name and then drawing the logo, which is still the logo now. And we made an Instagram and it was... You know, just something that was for fun. And about two months after, you know, I started roasting, started getting some coffees that tasted, you know, what I thought was pretty decent. And so I had about 13 people over into my backyard and uh, we did like a little cupping. And I was like, well, I just want somebody else to try it because I think it tastes decent. But, you know, what do people who, you know, don't really know much about coffee think about it? I made these, like, little cards, these little, like, scorecards for everybody to, like, write down and, like, take notes. And I had four different single-origin coffees. I had everybody, like, rank them, like, you know, what they thought was the best and then to what they thought was the worst, like, one through four. And it was funny because um, at the time, you know, I had, like... A definite like oh this is the best coffee this is the second best this is the third best this is definitely the worst and when I got back those cards at the end of the night it was like you know three people put this one number one three people put this one number one three people put this one number one and it helped me learn you know a, a good lesson from the beginning of like obviously like everybody has different tastes and you know, to be successful in this business or anything. Like, not that you can always cater to everybody, but like, I knew from the beginning, if I only catered to like my taste, then that would be wrong. Indeed, and when we come back, Gretchen Williams' story, Heartbreak Coffee's story, our American Dreamer series. We love these stories of small businesses. Many of them become big, some of them stay small, but it's part of this culture, part of our great country. And when we come back, Gretchen's story continues.
This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series continues. And this one, Gretchen Williams, right here in our own backyard, Heartbreak Coffee, Water Valley, Mississippi, a beautiful small town in a beautiful part of the country. And we're just about an hour south of Memphis, tucked in the hill country of Mississippi, not far from the Delta where, where the Delta Blues started. And let's now return to Gretchen's story. Literally two and a half years of my life went by and we were in the process of, we had a successful Kickstarter that we raised you know, money on and we were in the process of opening up a shop in downtown Long Beach. Like it kind of was all a blur from like month three until two and a half years later when, like I said, we had, we had signed a lease on a place in downtown Long Beach. Um, we were set to open up a shop uh, a shop in Roastery. The lease was already signed, and then things fell through. At that point was kind of the first time that, like, everything in that business came to a halt. And it was the first time that I was like, you know what, I kind of just, like, it's good, and I just need to, like, sit back for a second and decide the direction that I want to take this company instead of letting, you know, this company take me the direction that it was going. So I actually kind of put everything on the back burner for about nine months. And, it, you know, part of it, too, is just the fact that, like, it was super defeating. You know, I just had to rethink things, and I ended up getting a job working for Blue Bottle up in Venice Beach, which I knew that heartbreak was something that I wanted to do. You know, that was kind of my baby that I created. Uh, it was actually on my 30th birthday, which was June 30th of uh, 2016. I had decided that, like, as much as I loved being in California, I was getting older and, like, you know, I wanted to have a little bit slower-paced, more affordable life, and heartbreak was still something that I wanted to do. And actually, Oxford and Water Valley had always been in the back of my mind um, as far as, you know, someplace that even if I had had a shop in California, I always wanted to come back here um, and open up a shop too. I mean, a college town, and it's pretty untouched as far as, like, specialty coffee goes. So I always thought that, you know, what I was doing would be well-received here. And so I had a 16-foot U-Haul packed up with the back of my roaster in the back of that, which is like 350 pounds. It's not easy to move. Yeah, I drove with my two dogs and my roaster and, and uh, you know, the rest of my U-Haul from California to Oxford. I was like, this is what I'm going to, you know, this is what I'm going to do now. He was back in town. And it was time to figure out what the heck it was that she was going to do next. So once I got back to Oxford, I, I started doing, which I didn't mention before, but I had a sev- I bought a 79 Volkswagen bus. And this was before that uh, I had signed a lease on a place out in California. And part of the reason was, you know, real estate's so expensive out there. And I had gone on Craigslist and I had, I had sold my my Jeep Wrangler at the time and I decided that it was a smart investment to get a 1979 Volkswagen bus. It wasn't necessarily, but (laughs) it looks cute. But yeah, painted the logo on the side and and that's kind of the vessel that we used um, to do pop-ups and stuff like that out in California and had my bus shipped out here uh, and I decided, you know, I would basically kind of do the same route. But what is it about coffee that she loves so much? I think at first it was just being like 
in coffee shops. You know, the interactions that you get with people, your regulars, your just random folks that you get coming in, but you're creating something that's that's so small and like so the most like simplistic thing really but like it's a huge part of somebody's day and it really can like make or break it and 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 I love like I love being a part of that and I think that's what you know you see you see a lot in coffee shops too you know you see these interactions between people and I mean you see people fall in love and you see people break up and you see you know people come together of different walks of life and it's 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 just really like kind of magical space but then followed the interest into the science behind the coffee. After working in coffee for a couple of years, I went I went up to LA and and I had uh, my first cappuccino at a specialty coffee shop, and it was Intelligentsia in Silver Lake. And I remember just kind of being blown away and thinking, like, why in the world does this taste so much better than what I'm making in my, in my shop? Not only fell in love with the cafe aspect of it, which I already very much enjoyed, but then just kind of became a coffee nerd. It feels inadequate to say that Gretchen loves coffee. But she does have a good enough head on her shoulders to know that everybody's tastes are different. Just like she learned in that first tasting in her backyard. There's this lack of bridge kind of between specialty coffee and and customer service. You know, you walk into a lot of these specialty shops and they don't even put out cream or sugar because they're like, oh, my coffee is the best and, and it's roasted to perfection and you shouldn't have to add anything. Like, you have to drink it like this or, you know, we don't have syrup flavors because you, you know, you shouldn't have to add anything to your coffee, which, like, I I get the understanding of it. I get why being a purist, like, you know, that's that's our job as, like, you know, a creator of, of coffee and as a roaster to highlight these natural, you know, notes and nuances within these beans. And, like, so, again, like, you know, you feel like you've created something and you don't want somebody to ruin it. What matters just as much as having a, a quality product is having the customer have an enjoyable experience with that product. I literally cannot care if somebody wants black coffee or if they want like a little bit of coffee with their cream in the morning. Like if they're enjoying it, then I've done my job. She just wants to make something that brings people together. And she felt the best place to do that was in Mississippi. And maybe living in the big cities is not all it's cracked up to be. Well, at least for Gretchen. Has decided that small town America is what she calls home. Ended up being approached uh, about a space down in Water Valley and, and now have a roastery and a coffee shop down in Water Valley, Mississippi, which is crazy, but amazing. And everything has worked out exactly how it needs. And I think, you know, things are, things are only going to go up from here, hopefully. Maybe not because the game's heartbreak, so who knows. <laughs> From her backyard in California to a VW bus in Mississippi and now a storefront in Water Valley. It's funny, one of a story that I have about Water Valley was my ex-girlfriend who started this, well, who started Heartbreak with me, she's half Costa Rican, half Peruvian. And her grandmother, her grandmother's from Peru, lives in Peru, but she'll, she'll come over and she'll, she'll stay with them in California for six months and then go back uh, to Peru for six months and... I say Peru, it's not like, you know, it's not like she doesn't live in a big city. She lives, like, up in the mountains on this farm, like, makes cheese and has, like, goats. When she came several years ago, it was probably 
I don't know, four or five years ago, um, she actually came to Oxford. She, we went to Water Valley, and we took we took her grandmother, so this, you know, 70-some-year-old Peruvian lady to Water Valley, Mississippi. And we had, you know, she had been all over California, and we had taken her all over Oxford. We go to Water Valley, and of all places in Water Valley, we go to Piggly Wiggly, which <laughs> is, you know... This, this small little grocery store and, and outside of Piggly Wiggly, there are two picnic bitches in, in the parking lot and they're old and like rotted. And I mean, you know, if you touch them, you'll get a splinter. They're in terrible shape, but they have this chocolate pudding in the deli section of Piggly Wiggly. So we went there and we got this chocolate pudding and we were sitting out at these picnic tables and it was hot and humid outside. I mean, literally everything about this picture was like miserable. And her grandma's eating this pudding and like looking out into the scenery of the Piggly Wiggly parking lot, which doesn't have much to offer. I can promise you that. And all of a sudden she says in Spanish and she says, this is living. And I was like, dang, grandma just dropped some truth. Like... (laughs) You're absolutely right. Like, it's, and that's something that's like always stuck with me about Water Valley. And, and still to this day, that's, that's, like, that's how I feel about Water Valley. And like, I want to incorporate that like into the shop somehow, like make some sort of sign or something that says, this is living. But I love that. And I love how, like, you know, it's the simplest things, but like just being able, you know, again, like to relax and like have good food and like good company. And like, that's all you need in life. Like, that. Water Valley, this is living. And and I think she kind of grasped a perfect picture of like what Water Valley, Mississippi is. Good food, good company. And now that heartbreak is there, a great cup of coffee. And great job as always, Faith. And that was Gretchen Williams, her little piece of heaven on earth in Water Valley, Mississippi. This is living, folks. And there are so many ways to live here in this great country. And so many small business owners, a part of the American dream, bring so much value and so much that we all care for in our small towns and our big towns. Gretchen's story here on Our American Story. is Our American Stories, and right now, we're going to tell you the story of the show All in the Family. According to the Wall Street Journal, in its heyday, this show was watched regularly by nearly one-third of all Americans. Before its last of nine seasons and 212 episodes, the show had delivered six of the top 50 highest-rated television programs of all time. This is the story of All in the Family. From Television City in Hollywood... Boy, the way Glenn Miller played Songs that made the hit parade Guys like us, we had it made Those were the days It was doomed from the start The social satire television show called All in the Family was seen as too abrasive and failed to pull any punches Carol O'Connor played the blue-collar bigot Archie Bunker. 
The show's creator, Norman Lear, inclined O'Connor for the combination of bombast and sweetness the actor exuded on the big screen. O'Connor believed in the character, but not in the show's chances to succeed on television. Here's Rob Reiner. We knew he had a good show, but we figured it wouldn't last very long because it was so special, it was so different. Um, I remember Carol saying, you know, we'll probably do four episodes and then we'll probably get thrown off the air because nobody's going to sit still for this. When Norman Lear invited Gene Stapleton to read for the Edith role, Archie's wife, she couldn't get over the script. This on TV? I was terribly amused by it, by its reality and honesty and humor. CBS signed on for the pilot episode. O'Connor and Stapleton were joined by Sally Struthers, who played Archie's daughter, Gloria, and Rob Reiner, who played Mike Stivick, Gloria's husband. Rob had grown up surrounded by his comic genius father and his friends. Men like Mel Brooks, Sid Caesar, Dick Van Dyke. Says Rob, that was my kindergarten and they were my teachers. Norman Lear, a friend of Rob's father, Carl, had known Rob for over a decade. There had even been one day when Lear stopped by Reiner's house that Rob made him laugh with a routine about cheating at Jack's. Noted Lear to Carl Reiner, you've got a funny kid there. Rob's father responded, get out of here, he's not a funny kid. Years later, Carl Reiner expanded on this exchange. Oh, I knew the kid was funny. What I didn't know until a long time later was that he had talent. On the evening of January 12th, 1971, as soon as Hee Haw went off the air, All in the Family made its television premiere. This is what America heard at the start of the program. Warning. The program you are about to see is All in the Family. It seeks to throw a humorous spotlight on our frailties, prejudices, and concerns. By making them a source of laughter, we hope to show in a mature fashion just how absurd they are. Here's Sally Struthers. I heard that they manned all the CBS stations across the country with extra operators to take all the angry phone calls that were going to come in from people seeing the show, and it didn't happen. They got a lot of phone calls, but people were calling in and saying, What was that? Is that coming back? In the weeks following All in the Family's debut, CBS initiated and financed an opinion poll. The majority of the people questioned, including minority group members, indicated that they hadn't been offended. People who saw it discussed it, and people who hadn't discussed it anyhow. Bunker gives conservatives a bad name. Stivic gives liberals a bad name, were the typical responses. Here's show creator Norman Lear. The stern warning that began our show tonight was used on the first six episodes of All in the Family. Nervous CBS censors required us to warn viewers lest they be offended by the bunkers. They didn't have bothered. Hardly anyone watched. It was in the summer reruns that you found the show and it caught on. By the second season, All in the Family had become a certified hit. In May of 1972, All in the Family swept the Emmy Awards. Johnny Carson dubbed the ceremonies An Evening with Norman Lear. Here's a clip of Archie Bunker and his son-in-law, Mike Stivick, sparring. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going to sue that guy. First thing in the morning, I'm going to get myself a good Jew lawyer. 
Bridge lawyer. Because we're not going to sue a neighbor, Ab. I'm going to get a guy that's full of hate. Just because a guy is sensitive and, and, and he's an intellectual and he wears glasses, you make him out of queer. I never said a guy who wears glasses is a queer. A guy who wears glasses is a four-eyes. A guy who is a is a queer. What's in the name, anyhow, huh? In my day, nobody went around calling himself Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, Afro-Americans. We was all Americans. After that, if a guy was a or a it was his own business. Archie's a World War II veteran turned loading dock union worker from Queens, New York. In his eyes, he's no bigot. A bigot spouts mindless prejudice, whereas Archie believes that he's thought things through that he's simply aware of the rules ordained by nature to make some people sluggish and other people cheats. Besides, to Archie, a racist would only use negative labels, while he's the first to declare that the sharpest lawyers are Jews. At his core, Archie's not prejudiced. He hates everyone. In the complete book of nerds, author Bob Stein lists Archie's wife's name as Dingbat. Her nickname as Edith Bunker, and her hobby as taking abuse. Here's Archie and Edith. Archie, I'm sorry. I thought I was doing a good thing. Oh, sure, good thing. That's you all over. We're always doing good. Edith, the good. You never get mad at nobody. You never holler at nobody. You never swear. No nothing. You're like a saint, Edith. You think it's fun living with a saint? It ain't. It ain't at all. Look at this, you you don't even cheat to win, you cheat to lose. <laughs> I mean, Edith, you ain't human. <coughs> That's a terrible thing to say. I'm just as human as you are. Prove you're just as human as me. Do something rotten. <laughs> Norman Lear gave Gene Stapleton the key to Edith's character, that Edith no longer hears what Archie is saying, having tuned out years ago. So it's no wonder Edith shuffles the way she does. Her gears are permanently out of whack from a lifetime of turning the other cheek. Here we are! Ah, here. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Bunker. Ah, thanks, Edith. No, that's all right. I can, I can say, Mr. Davis, Edith, get out of here. Here's Gene Stapleton and Carol O'Connor on the show's secret for success. I feel there was a moral statement made almost every week. But you see, it, number one, it was entertainment, and it was comedy. You can reach people through comedy. We were kidding uh, American attitudes, and uh, the, uh, the artistic term for that is satire. Archie's son-in-law, Mike, is an atheist who renounced his own Catholic baptism long ago. Archie believes in Catholic infant baptism so much that he kidnaps Mike's son, Joey, and baptizes his grandson himself. Now, this here, Lord, is my little grandson, Joe. See? Now, his parents, they don't care if he's baptized because his old man is a dopey atheist. So, they're going to do it here while we get the chance, you know? I don't want my little grandson growing up without religion in this rotten world of yours. A friend of their Lord be. We all know you did the best you could with only six days to get it all together. Now don't worry, Joey, because this ain't gonna make you holler, see, like that other thing they done to you. Now, Lord, this is Joseph Michael Stevick here, a Christian. 
Joseph Michael Stubbe, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now. I hope that took, Lord, because they're going to kill me when I get home. When we come back, more on the story of All in the Family here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, we continue with the story of All in the Family. And by the way, it was interesting that this show, had it not been for the repeats in the summer and a second season, would have never been the hit show it was. And I think today, in the current conditions, you'd get one shot and you'd be out. So there was something about those old days and sticking with an act and an artist that really allowed folks to develop. Let's return to the story of All in the Family. Although claiming to be a Christian, Archie's God and his theology are made in Archie's image. All over the world, they celebrate the birth of that baby. And everybody gets time warp and wait. Now, if that ain't proof that he's the son of God, then nothing is. (laughs) He made us all one true religion, ain't it? Christians. She named after his son, Christian. <laughs> well, Christ for sure. I never thought of that. Here's Archie and Sammy Davis Jr. I think that, I mean, if God had meant us to be together, he'd have put us together. Well, look what he'd done. He put you over in Africa, he put the rest of us in all the white countries. Well, you must have told him where we were because somebody came and got it. Archie's patriotism and American history are also made in his image. That ain't the American way, buddy. No, sorry. Listen here, Professor. You're the one that needs an American history lesson. You don't know nothing about Lady Liberty. Standing there in the hub with her torch on high. Screaming out to all the nations in the world, send me your poor, your deadbeats, your filthy. <laughs> and all the nations sent them in here. They come swarming in like ants. Your Spanish PRs from the California. Your Japs, your Chinamen, your Crouch and your Heaps, and your Lincoln Spanish. Come in here, and they're all free to live in their own separate sections. <laughs> Where they feel safe, and they bust your head if you go in there. That's what makes America great, buddy. Chicago-born Mike Stivick married Archie's daughter, Gloria, who works full-time while her husband is enrolled in college full-time. Mike is a jobless, peace-marching sociology major of heavily left-wing persuasion, and they both live with Archie and Edith in Queens. Mike's friends frequently seem to appreciate Gloria more than he does. Indeed, in many ways, he treats Gloria just as Archie treats Edith, with the difference that maybe he'll kiss her in the living room. Mike is of Polish descent, 
sports long hair and a parted Prince Valiant cut and a mustache, which Rob Reiner grew at 24 to look old enough to get the part of Mike. You know something, Mr. Bunker? At first I thought I misjudged you. And I was right. I did misjudge you. You're a lot more ignorant than I thought. Did you hear what he called me ignorant? Well, let me tell you something. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but you are one dumb polar. The jobless Mike doesn't consider that Archie has lived firsthand a life he only reads about in sociology books. Where do you get all these ideas? Oh, from the College of Hard Knocks, sonny boy. I've been everywhere the grass grows green. I've seen everything there is to see. I know people. The reason you don't know nothing about people is you always got your big mouth open. You're never willing to listen to nobody. How do you do, sir? May I have a moment of your time? No. The relationship between Archie and Mike was written by Norman Lear to reflect his relationship with his own father. In fact, Lear's father also referred to Norman as dead from the neck up. An expletive which Lear has Archie hurling at Mike as early as the first episode. Let me tell you something, Mr. Bunker. No, let me tell you something, Mr. Stivic. You are a meathead. <laughs> what did you call me? A meathead. Dead from the neck up. Meathead. What Archie would love to see, most of all, is Mike working. So, adding insult to injury, when Mike inherits money he decides to donate it to George McGovern's presidential campaign instead of toward repaying Archie, who has been subsidizing his lifestyle, and then pontificates that Archie doesn't do enough for his fellow man. And since Archie doesn't choose to give more of his money away, Mike advocates a socialist system that will call him nasty names and give it away on his behalf. But through all of the wincing and laughter, we also learn something. We learn how to be less hateful and bigoted towards those who are hateful and bigoted. The episode Two's a Crowd chronicles the events of Archie and Mike getting locked in a storeroom overnight. When escape seems futile, the two turn to sharing a bottle and a large blanket as the episode slowly turns into an incredibly honest, personal look at who these two men are. This episode was Carol O'Connor's favorite. Here's a clip. Did you ever think that, that possibly your, your, your father just might be wrong? Wrong, my old man? Don't be stupid, my old man. Let me tell you about him. He was never wrong about nothing. Yes, he was, Arch. I... My old man used to call people the same things as your old man. But I always knew he was wrong. So was your old man. No, he was. Yes, he was. He your was. father was wrong. Sir? Your father was wrong! Don't tell me my father was wrong. Let me tell you something. Your father who made you wrong? Your father? The breadwinner of the house there? The man who goes out and busts his butt to keep a roof over your head? Clothes on your back, you call your father wrong. Hey, hey, your father. Your father. That's the man that comes home bringing you candy. Your father's the first guy to throw baseball to you and take you for walks 
in the park, holding by the hand. My father held me by the hand away. My father had a hand on him now. I'll tell you, he busted that hand once, and he busted her on me to teach me to do good. <laughs> my father, he shoved me in the closet for seven hours to teach me to do good. Because he loved me. He loved me. Don't be looking at me. Yeah. Let me tell you something. You're supposed to love your father. Because your father loves you. But how can any man that loves you tell you anything that's wrong? As Rob Reiner's father, Carl, remarked, a few would deny all in the family reshaped the face of television. For years, every new sitcom on the air was either liberated by or reacting to it. It's the Jeffersons, Archie. Oh, the Jeffersons. Oh, wait a minute. Hold You don't mean them new people that moved in down the front? Yeah, Lionel's family. They're really very nice people, Oh, yeah, very nice. They're wonderful people. They're lovely people, Lita, but they are also colored people. Better hold it there, Daddy. Now, listen, little girl. Been around a lot of places. I've done a lot of things, but there's one thing Archie Bunker ain't never going to do, and that's break bread with no Within a few years of its debut in 1971, all in the Family, together with its spin-offs and godchildren, The Jeffersons, Maud, Good Times, and Sanford and Son, reached 120 million Americans, more than half the nation's population. All in the Family frequently earned the accolade of national theater, and its best scripts fall not an iota short of national literature, while Archie has joined the pantheon of American folk heroes. For his portrayal of Archie Bunker, Carol O'Connor earned more awards than any other actor ever received for a single TV characterization. When the Guinness Book of World Records recognized All in the Family as commanding TV's highest advertising rates, the series became known as the Super Bowl of sitcoms and Archie as the most expensive racist on television. Any topical program runs the danger of quickly becoming dated. All in the family escaped that fate. So strong is the story, so real are the people, that the episodes work even when occasional references elude the audience. It is why Archie's chair, Edith's chair, and Archie's beer can occupy a place of honor on display at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., They are as much a part of our national heritage as Abe Lincoln's stovepipe hat and George Washington's wooden teeth. All in the Family was recorded on tape before a live audience. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that as always, Greg. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. 
www.artsandcultureonline.org. So many stories about our nation's past, our arts, our culture. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our next story comes from Christy Stone Hamrick and her piece in Life Set about something we all think about and all probably think we don't do enough of. Exercise. Here's her unique take. Yeah! Oh, hello. I'm White Goodman, owner, operator, and founder of Globo Gym America Corp. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to be stuck with what you got. Hey, Rory. Looking good. Here at Globo Gym, we understand that ugliness and fatness are genetic disorders, much like baldness or necrophilia. And it's only your fault if you don't hate yourself enough to do something about it. And that's where we come in. <laughs> so, Americans are fat. At least that's the running monologue playing out in more media outlets than we can completely ignore. Get in my belly! Come on! But somewhere along the journey from childhood to retirement, the solution to that problem has become the New Year's resolution that almost everyone makes and almost everyone hates. Exercise more. As children, playing outside was the reward, not the punishment. Now you're all in big, big trouble. So much so that a ridiculous trend in too many elementary schools today is for children to be deprived of outside playtime in a stationary timeout at recess as punishment. Work, 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 everyone. Because we all know that the one thing that helps discipline a hyperactive child to be calm is enforced stillness. Go stand in the corner. Or not. Yet trudging through the institutional world of education, exercise became the thing that the quintessential sadistic gym teacher enforced. Those that can't do, teach. And those that can't teach, teach gym. Right there! Complete with tests, metrics, and goals for the unattainable. The joy of movement dimmed as the realization that perfection was just not on the menu for most of us grew. And there was the math to prove it. Charts, indexes, measurements, graphs, all calculated to show the weary where they fall short. Exercise stopped being many people's entertainment when it stopped being fun. I can't be the only person who finds modern-day conversations about exercise about as compelling as a marketing report full of deliverables and metrics, or like a performance review by a cranky boss who won't notice the 10 things you did right, but only the one thing you did wrong. Here we are. Look. This is fitness. These things are correlates, maybe components, but absolutely positively subordinate to what happens here. You with me? I already live in a world of deadlines and demands. Whether at home or at work, I must comply with so many requirements that I cannot bear to take up an activity that has a to-do list. Monica, it's Sunday morning. I'm not running on a Sunday. Why not? Because it's Sunday. 
It's God's day. <laughs> you say stop, and we stop. <laughs> okay. Stop. In fact, a working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research reported that even when people were paid to go to the gym, most were not motivated to do so. No, come on, we can't stop. Come on, we got three more pounds to go. I am the energy train, and you are on board. I'll say that line again. Most were not motivated to do it. Money could not camouflage the reality that many have lost that love and feeling for organized pain. You know, I try to stay positive. So you, you feel like going for a run? Because you know you don't have to. If you want, you could just take a nap right here. Okay. And when the sales pitch is no pain, no gain, how surprising is it that many people just say no? Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. As my own children reach adulthood, I listen to their conversations about how they should exercise if only they had the time. Should stands doomed in the English language, a verbal storeroom for closets we don't want to clean or vegetables we don't want to eat. Uh, you know we really should quit. Okay, let's quit. Yes, great! <laughs> as soon as you should do something, you don't want to do it. Hey! Hey! Uh-oh. Busted. <laughs> Rachel, we tried to quit, but it was too hard. In today's competitive school environments, the emphasis can be so much on winning that coaches don't want to spend time with kids in general, but rather a specific few. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? So they call every team to yeah. the top players. If a coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. Forgotten is the beautiful model of days past, called my childhood, in which every kid could come out to practice and to participate with the team. Hey, buddy, hold up, man. While only a deserving and talented few suited up on game day. Don't you understand, man? If you don't cool it out there, you're going to end up getting yourself killed. If I cool it, I won't be helping you guys get ready for the next week's games. Got it? The team was bigger than the perfect, and the fun of training together was its own reward. If you need a reminder of that, watch the movie Rudy with a box of tissues. You ready, champ? I'm ready for this my whole life. I am a proud member of the track B team, and will probably live longer for it. The A-team intensified their performances and ran until they were sick in the grass, driving for excellence, admirable to be sure. But on the B-team, we jogged on the track, rarely so intensely that we couldn't keep the conversation running, and got out of school on the day of the meets to run a few races and cheer on the winners. Staying in shape in the context of community was the draw. Recently, I rediscovered running which for me means faster than walking, at a pace, most likely to be the worst in any timed race. I don't want to train for anything, achieve anything, or set a record. What I like best about running is that I'm not working. I wonder if more people would overlook the fact that they're exercising if they could remember that it used to be fun outside. It feels a bit un-American to tell people don't go for the gold, but I suspect that more people would try getting active if it sounded less like work and a lot more like a reward. You want to play me? Outside, you get a break from work, chores, family, computers, and responsibilities. 
Take a page from your five-year-old self and have a moment of fun where the sun is shining. And don't let the fact that some will label your activity exercise ruin it. And that's Christy Stone Hemrick's story about exercise here on Our American Stories. And great job, as always, on that one, Greg. I'm sorry, but I'm just thinking of the ride was to see. I promise. I know they don't sound the way I planned them to be. But if you wait around a while, I'll make you This is Our American Stories, and that music cues us for one of our favorite regular features, and that's The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell, and she writes that column weekly for the Wall Street Journal, and for all of you who think you're going to go to the journal and just get highfalutin finance, our favorite part of the journal is the personal journal, and one of our favorite people who writes regularly for the personal journal is Heidi Mitchell, and her latest question How often should I replace my coffee mug in the office? And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you know, Heidi. I need a cup of coffee right now. I I need two. And I I drink soda. So (laughs) I don't drink coffee. I get my caffeine from Coca Cola. But you could say the same about my Coke mug. So we'll we'll have to. I know it's gross. But let's talk about (laughs) how did. Why this one, Heidi? Is there someone in your office who has what we call the really gross coffee mug? It's more that the devotion to the coffee mug that people who have worked in the same office at the journal or wherever for forever, they haven't never replaced them. So you'll go to the, you know, the kitchen and wash your mug out or whatever, make microwave your lunch. And in the cabinet are these sort of verboten mugs that have been there for 15, 20 years. <laughs> you're not allowed to use them. Yeah, you're so not the question to... was like, whose are these and why are they so attached to these? And is it unsafe to have the same disgusting brown mug? sitting in there for years yeah and by the way it's not only that you can't use them some people won't even let you look at them or touch them it's so personal (laughs) no don't look at my mug do not look at my mug (laughs) i mean you get attached to these things they're hard to find the perfect mug i i I understand that so so tell me this first uh, heidi do you use the same coffee mug from your early writing days i'm the worst because i i get my coffee from the guy at the cart and I don't spend more than a dollar on my coffee. I probably spend less than any average American on coffee, on any coffee-drinking American, because I just get it from the cup, from the cup, from the guy in the street. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. I don't have a mug. Oh, my goodness. Well, this, this, gives, get a mug. this allows you to be dispassionate about this. And, and what's <laughs> the worry here, Heidi? You, you, you have a mug, or your mug's near one of these other mugs? Because that's what I always worry about. It's like too much contact to that, that diseased or old mug. Do I have anything to worry about? Does anybody have anybody to worry? Anybody have anything to worry about, Heidi? You know, there are few um, germs that can last more than an hour on an inert object like a like a mug. So you really don't have anything to worry about. I mean, they're, they're, it's not like the germs are going to jump from one mug to the next. I guess that they're touching, maybe. But you need a critical mass to get you sick. So you really don't, there's never been a case as far as the NIH or, or any major uh, institutions have known about that people were, there was a, a mass breakout of infection due to coffee mugs. So your mug sitting next to another mug. It's cool. It's, your mug's fine. Your so mug, so you what about that, fine. you know, we have a friend in the studio who, when we described the, uh, 
the office coffee mug talked about his dad's and how his dad would just never, ever replace it. And, you know, it would start to get him nervous. Talk about that. Also, talk about Navy sailors who take really great pride in what I call or what you call seasoning the mug, seasoning the mug. I like that. I love this. Um, so, so I was talking to, uh, you know, this Dr. Stark, who, um, you know, he was the director of infection control at a hospital in Texas for 22 years. And you're talking about about Dr. Jeffrey Stark, a professor of pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And what I love here, Heidi, is that in the end, you always call some expert who has an expertise in almost everything in every walk of American life. I just love that part of your column. Who knew? Who knew knew these people existed? Right. Well, he he couldn't find any studies that were specifically on coffee mugs and germs that lurk inside of them. But he did have this great anecdote about um, how, like you said, in the Navy, they take this great pride. There's a thing called, um, uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, seasoning their mugs. So um, so he said there there was some, if you Google it, you can see on these like Navy blogs that... um, the first thing your sergeant will tell you is don't wash your mug. And that supposedly the Navy coffee is just toxic. And so the, the longer you let it, it your, your coffee mug turn brown over months and years, the better that your coffee will taste. There's not data to back this up, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. So seasoning your mug, letting it turn, you know how it turns brown on the inside yep. from the black coffee. So, uh, so yeah, so, it, there's no data that says that this unwashed mug or this blackness that sits inside of the of the mug, un, empty, unwashed mug, is bad for you. Doesn't harbor germs, doesn't harbor infectious disease, hasn't resulted in any outbreaks. So, um, so you you know you don't really need to even wash out your mug. You can just rinse out your mug. Kind of gross. It is kind of but, gross. It is kind of. But here's where it gets grosser. Doctor Stark. This is, I'm going to quote from your article, Heidi, and I know writers generally don't like having their own work quoted back at them. But here's Dr. Stark's quote, which you include in the piece. Now, if you leave cream or sugar in your mug over the weekend, now that can certainly cause mold to grow. And if your mug had obvious signs of mold, you might not want to drink from it. Talk about that, Heidi. I think that's fairly obvious. But haven't you done that where you like... I mean, my dad's a big, oh, he does this all the time where he buys a coffee in the morning then he leaves it in the car all day and then the next morning he's like, meh. And I'll just drink his coffee from the car. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you can see there's like kind of oil spills on top and all this stuff. The lint in the air that's fallen onto it. It's just disgusting. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess the first thing you do when you get to your office is just like pour out whatever's in there, rinse it out. And then you can start your Keurig or whatever they have at your office um, and fill your mug. But, um, you know, if it has obvious signs of like, you know, that, that it will cause almost like a crust of that white creamer is just the worst, but milk will curdle too. It's just gross. You can totally tell. Yeah. But, you know, if you rinse it out, it doesn't like the, the, I asked about the ceramic and the glaze and that stuff won't, it won't hold in that bacteria or viruses or anything like that. They, they can't live for more than like a year, so a, an hour. So like even overnight, if you had rinsed out your mug and left it sitting there and there's like little bits of coffee in there, it's not going to leave um, any like whatever legionnaires or whatever in there. Well, that's good to know, Heidi. By the way, I have a rule in my family, and that is that dad is not allowed to take takeout food ever again from anywhere because I will take it, stick it underneath the seat. And then I'll leave it underneath the seat for anywhere from two days to two months until one day we all discover that dad's done it again. And there's all kinds of things growing in the car. 
Yeah, it's terrible. I do want to know that how long can food last? Because we have a debate in my house about leftovers. Nobody eats the leftovers. And then four days later, I'm like, I feel like it has to go in the garbage. My mother, I'm living with her in the summer, she's like, oh, no, it's good for a week. I really don't think cooked food in the fridge is good for a week. No, I don't think so either. Coffee from yesterday is also not good. (laughs) No, it's not. So knowing all we know... uh, how should we wash our mugs, and how often should we wash them? Okay, so this is an interesting one. You should wash your mug with like a little dab of soap and some warm water. He says, like a lot of people said, well, there were some a lot of things online, but you could take the super hot water that comes out of the spigot sometimes, or on one of those on um, like mulligan ones and um, culligan ones, and and fill your uh, mug with some hot water, and then just swish it around and pour it out. But what you don't want to do is use the sponge because of all the nasty things in your office. Besides, you know, that coworker that you don't like, that sponge is the grossest thing in the office. Um, it ha- has everyone's germs on it from all the food that they clean, that they clean, that, you know, the place they clean the food off with and their dirty hands and whether or not they used the bathroom and didn't wash their hands and then pick up the sponge. And so the sponge is really disgusting. So don't use that on your, um, on your mug when you're cleaning it. But, you know, if you accidentally use that verboten mug that's sitting in the in the cabinet and maybe that person's out sick and you've always wanted to try the I Love Mom mug that's sitting in there, um, what's great is that you don't have to worry about getting sick from it because, as Dr. Stark said, um, normal people's normal germs really won't make you sick. He said if they did, then we would have to ban kissing. Well, that's a that's a fair point, though. There are some people I don't know if I want to kiss them because their mouths are receptacles of diseases, too. That's true, too. Oh, well, Heidi, what are you doing? Anything special for your Christmas season? I'm going to my motherland, my homeland of New York City. Well, so good. I'll be there for a few weeks, a few days, just, you know, pretending like I still live there. Good for you. If you have a chance, if you have a chance and you're in Brooklyn, ask a uh-huh. cab driver to take you to Spumoni Gardens. And if you haven't ever been there in your life, You'll thank me after you have their pizza. It's truly Spumoni the most... Gardens. Spumoni Gardens. Pizza Dan, Brooklyn. I'm Googling it as you speak. Avenue U. It's a legend. It's been, on every, it's been featured on almost every cooking network, but my friends in Brooklyn don't know about it. Every time I go back to even Manhattan, I demand to go out to Spumoni Gardens. I'm promising you, you won't regret it. Heidi, as right. always, we love having you on. Uh, have a happy holidays, and we'll look forward to talking to you on the other side. Thank you. Take care. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. And she, of course, writes that for the personal journal, a part of the Wall Street Journal. Go to WSJ.com to get America's paper. It's simply the best paper in the world. And again, this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, where we love to tell you stories about the things that matter in your life. From sports to the arts, and that's music and movies, straight through to history and to the personal. And by the way, from the personal, we mean, well, love and death and marriage. Stories that make you think or laugh or cry. That's what we do here. No screaming, no yelling. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This next story is so bizarre that most people think it's an urban legend, even though it's very much a true story. This is the tale of Lawn Chair Larry. Here's Jesse. Larry Walters had always dreamed of flying. By the age of 13, on a visit to an Army-Navy surplus store, he saw several empty weather balloons hanging from the store's ceiling and thought that it would be an interesting way to attain flight. When he came of age, he enlisted in the United States Air Force with the hope of finally learning to fly. However, it was discovered that he had poor eyesight, thus killing his flight career before it could even begin. After leaving the Air Force, Walters began to hatch his plan. His idea was to attach a couple of helium-filled weather balloons to a lawn chair, then cut away an anchor and float above his own backyard at a height of about 30 feet for just a couple of hours. 33-year-old Larry Walters was now living in North Hollywood and working as a truck delivery man for a film production company when he invested $4,000 in his project, purchasing nearly four dozen surplus weather balloons. Under the guise of being for use in filming a television commercial, he also purchased compressed helium cylinders, a sturdy aluminum lawn chair from Sears, and various other bits of equipment for the flight. Walters even learned how to skydive and planned on wearing a parachute for the flight, just in case. The night before the launch of a short test flight of the contraption, Walters and several friends met up at the San Pedro home of Carol Van Dusen, Larry's then-girlfriend. The crew inflated balloons throughout the night and rigged together the chair and assorted equipment. At 11 o'clock in the morning of July 2nd, 1982, Walters sat atop his lawn chair under his towering apparatus, christened Inspiration One. Four tiers of helium balloons, over 40 in total, rose tall above him. The flight plan called for Walters and his balloons to fly out over Long Beach and 300 miles east towards the Mojave Desert. He was equipped with an altimeter, a parachute, a life jacket in case of a water landing, a two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola, a sandwich, and a Citizens Band CB walkie-talkie radio. He also carried a BB gun pistol. His idea was to shoot the balloons one by one to gently lower his altitude when it was time to come down. Now tethered to the ground by three lines tied up to the bumper of a jeep, Walters waited with anticipation as the ropes were to be cut. But after his girlfriend cut one of the tethers holding the craft to the ground, the other two ropes snapped suddenly. The balloons and Walters and his lawn chair were rocketed skyward. His eyeglasses ripped from his face, and he was soaring upwards at an alarming rate. He had only expected to attain a flight level of 100 feet off the ground. Using the CB radio that he had brought along for the ride, he radioed his girlfriend on the ground. Here's the actual audio from that fateful flight. Lord, cut him, Larry, cut him down. You gotta come down if you can't see. Cut him down. I've got him down. Oh, 
That's my other glasses. I can see perfectly. Don't worry. You copy over. I copy. Are you sure you're okay? There's trees up there. We can hear them. Are you okay? I'm okay. I'm going through a thin fog layer. Over. My altitude's 1,500 feet. See marine land right now. Okay, you can see marine land. So you're heading toward. Oh my God, you're going towards the ocean already. Fearing that he might unbalance the load, he didn't dare shoot any of the balloons with his BB gun. Instead, he spent about two hours up in the sky at 16,000 feet, over three miles high. From San Pedro, Walters and his balloons began to drift over Long Beach and cross the primary approach path of Long Beach Airport. Yeah, I wish I was a bird. Birds can fly. airline pilots from both TWA and Delta reported seeing him to the control tower. Walters grabbed his CB radio again, this time using Channel 9, the designated emergency channel, and attempted to notify the tower. They were in disbelief of what they were hearing. Now shivering in the thin, high-altitude air, Walters finally used his BB gun to start popping balloons in order to lower his altitude. Now descending... He aimed as best he could to land at the Virginia City Country Club in Long Beach, but he came down just short of the golf course and headed into a residential neighborhood. He dumped out the gallon jugs of water tied to the lawn chair to slow his landing, but on the way down, his balloons draped over a set of power lines. Left dangling five feet off the ground, the police had to shut down electricity in Long Beach for 20 minutes in order for Walters to safely climb out of his contraption down and into the backyard of a house in Long Beach. He was immediately arrested by waiting members of the Los Angeles Police Department. When asked by a reporter why he had done it, Walters replied, quote, A man can't just sit around. The Federal Aviation Administration was initially baffled by the incident, and Walters had been catapulted unexpectedly and unprepared from obscurity to national fame. In December of 1982, Walters was accused by the FAA of committing several violations of the Federal Aviation Act. The resulting fines totaled $4,000. Walters went on to tour as a motivational speaker after his flight. He quit his job as a truck driver, but was never able to make much money from his fame. Walters even accepted invitations to appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Late Night with David Letterman. We're delighted to have this gentleman with us tonight. Please welcome Larry Walters. This is a phenomenal thing. Where did you get the idea to do this? Uh, when did it hit you? You said it was a 20-year dream? Yes, sir. Uh, it hit me when I was a young boy, about 13 years old. I was in an Army Navy surplus store. Saw a weather balloon dangling from the ceiling. And I just got the idea uh, to put uh, to inflate these balloons, and I figured if I had enough of them, it'd lift me. Uh-huh. The idea was just, you know, the float. Yeah. And I was fascinated by it, and I fulfilled the 20-year dream. But Larry Walters never found happiness. Later on in his life, Walters hiked into the San Gabriel Mountains and shot himself in the heart. He left no suicide note. And that's the story of Lawn Chair Larry. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. When he was a young man, he dreamed of flying high. He dreamed of flying far above his home and through the clear blue sky. Lawn, cut it! Larry, cut him down! You gotta come down if you can't see! Cut him down!
Just a great job, Jesse. And you know, the thing about Americans is we're always trying to test boundaries. And we love aviation stories here on Our American Stories. And you want to hear a stem winder about a couple of crazy guys who tested some boundaries? Listen to David McCullough on our show and his book, The Wright Brothers. These were two crazy guys tinkering with air travel long before anyone else could get up in the air. These two bicycle mechanics were doing it. In the fields of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, they were crazy, they were wild, they were unqualified, and they did it. And that's what Americans do. They do crazy things in their spare time. We cover those stories, the famous ones like the Wright Brothers, and the sort of kind of famous ones like Lawn Chair Larry. Lawn Chair Larry's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And today, on this day in history, the Stamp Act came into force in 1765. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And joining us to discuss this really important day in American history is Dr. Paul Ray of Hillsdale College. And thanks for joining us, Dr. Ray. It's a pleasure to be with you. You bet. Tell us a little background. Put us back there and lead us to the circumstances that led to this day in history. Okay, there, there, are, two, there are two concerns here. Uh, the first is that the colonists had never been taxed before. You have 150 years or more of history that lies behind this. And the colonists had been left to govern themselves uh, with limited input from the English monarch and the Privy Council and so forth. And they had uh, been left to tax themselves. So this is an imposition of a tax on them that is unprecedented. The second thing is they are not represented in the parliament that voted for these taxes. And one of the fundamental principles of government in both England and America is that laws passed and taxes imposed ought to be applied to those who pass them. That is to say that the members of parliament, uh, if they pass a tax, should be subject to that tax. If they pass a law, should be subject to that law. So if you look at it from the American side, uh, this is a breach. This is a breach with all past practice, and in a common law culture, uh, 
past practice uh, determines the law. Uh, what you haven't done for 150 years, you can't really do. Um, uh, but the second thing is, why would the British be interested in doing this at all? Uh, and the answer goes back to the fact that they are very worried uh, that the colonies are going to become self-sufficient uh, and quasi-independent. Now, in a certain sense, they've been quasi-independent all along. They govern themselves. They all have assemblies. They had been promised self-government when they colonized in North America. Uh, but there's another aspect to it. Uh, in most colonies, there are governors appointed by the crown or appointed by the proprietors. And the colonial legislatures uh, provide for their pay. Uh, and they'd use that leverage that this gave them to deprive these governors of the, um, of the powers that were conferred on them by law, which is to say if they displeased the colonial legislatures, they didn't get paid. Uh, and wanting to get paid, uh, they were more subservient to the colonial legislatures than to the crown or the proprietors who were responsible for their appointment. That bothered the British. Uh, the second thing is, if you go all the way back to 1656 and James Harrington's Oceana, uh, there is a concern in certain circles in England uh, that the colonies will um, become independent of the mother country. And that grows. Uh, you can find it in Cato's letters in the 1720s. Uh, and there are those in England, the court Whigs, who are of the view that this is inevitable and that if the colonies are to prosper, uh, they will become more and more self-sufficient, and what the British need to do is simply remain on good terms with the colonies. There are others in Britain, going back to the 1720s and the 1740s, who are strenuously arguing, you've got to get the colonies under your thumb, or they are going to become independent. This latter group of people come to power in the wake of the French and Indian War in 1762, and they're behind the Stamp Act, in particular uh, the early leader of this group, George Grenville. So that's how it comes about, and that's why the Americans are so deeply offended by it. And 150 years is a long time, and it's a lot of precedent to go back to that common law language you were talking about. Let's talk about that war, because there was a tremendous financial cost and this is uh, the French and Indian War. Talk about what that war was about and how much debt this really added up to. Well, the war begins when a young whippersnapper named George Washington is captured by the French in the vicinity of what will eventually be called Pittsburgh. So it begins in the New World. Uh, it involves tensions in Europe, uh, and, and uh, in Europe it's not called the French and Indian War, it's called the Seven Years' War. It's an extremely expensive war, which is won by the British under the leadership of a statesman named William Pitt. That's why Pittsburgh is named Pittsburgh. And its effect is that the French are driven out of India, and that the French are driven out of North America. And it has two consequences. One consequence is the Americans are no longer as dependent on Britain as before because they no longer have a French colony uh, in Quebec to the north. Uh, and that's important because one of the things that, that induces the Americans to be especially loyal to the British crown is the British crown protects them, but now they don't need so much protection from the British crown. 
the other aspect of it is the national debt in Britain grows uh, tremendously because of this war. And uh, one of the justifications made for passing the Stamp Act is that it will reduce the uh, it will it, it will help the British pay off this debt. And from a British point of view, they were fighting for North America. It was the North Americans who gained the most from this war, and they ought to contribute. Had the British asked the North American colonies to themselves vote to contribute, they might have contributed something. What they're upset about is the unilateral imposition of a tax on them without their consent. The other thing is the deeper purpose of this tax, the Americans suspect, is to provide money to allow the British to pay the salaries of the governors who come over, uh, and therefore to strengthen uh, the role of these governors in colonial governance. And the, uh, the Americans who really run their own affairs uh, nominally under these governors really don't want this. So there's really a power struggle going on here. And what exactly did the Stamp Act say? Well, it provides a rather moderate tax. I mean, there's talk in America that they're unable to pay it, which is absurd, uh, on um, playing cards, on um, all sorts of legal documents and so forth. Uh, so it, it's, it's, a, um, it's a kind of um, use tax. You know, it's not a tax on goods. It's an tax, it's a, except playing cards and things like that. It's a tax on activities, and the amount of revenue that it is apt to produce is not all that high, but it might be enough to cover the salaries of uh, royal officials in the colonies. And how did the Americans react to all this, Dr. Ray? Well, prior to the passage of the Stamp Act, the American colonies had next to nothing to do with one another. They didn't much like one another. They were governed under different charters. They had quarrels with one another that were often settled by the Privy Council in England. And they had very little trade with one another and very little direct knowledge of one another. So what the Stamp Act did, it was counterproductive from a British point of view. Uh, They were worried that the Americans might organize themselves and get together and form a body that would be almost as strong as England. Uh, And an attempt had been made to do something along those lines by Benjamin Franklin in 1754 with the Albany Plan of Union. But the colonies had all rejected the Albany Plan of Union. They weren't interested in getting together. So what the British did is imposed a tax on them, and suddenly there was a common threat to local autonomy. And that common threat caused the Americans to respond by joining together and, and sending delegations to something called the Stamp Act Congress, uh, which took place in New York. And it was the first time that most of the people in attendance had ever left their own colonies to go anywhere but Britain. So all these people who turn out to be important later in the American Revolution, they first meet uh, at the Stamp Act Congress. And if they don't meet there, they meet at the Continental Congress a few years later, which is formed in response to the Townsend Acts uh, and the Intolerable Acts. But without, without the Stamp Act, we wouldn't have had this first unification, in a sense, this first precursor 
to the Continental Congress, Dr. Ray. Right. No, you wouldn't have had. Uh, there was no, um, uh, other than people like Benjamin Franklin, who thought continentally, Americans didn't think continentally, and the Albany Plan of Union was not welcome to Americans. There were a handful of people in the sort of political elites in the various colonies that rallied to the Albany Plan of Union. But there wasn't a single colony that was enthusiastic in support of it. And yet, you know, ten years later, they're pulling together because suddenly there's a common threat. And these taxation and tax-based grievances would find their way into the Declaration of Independence and develop the organized resistance building to the American Revolution. The Stamp Act comes into force today on this day in history in 1765. And Dr. Paul Ray, professor of history at Hillsdale College, well, he takes us back. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Ray. My pleasure. You bet. This is Lee Habib and the Stamp Act. Featured on this day in history, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu.